Welcome to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney. Vivian is here to talk to you, to encourage you, and to show you how she had a successful homeschooling experience with her Wildflower Academy, and that her kids turned out great, and that with God's help, you can create the same experience she did. From her beginnings in Hostert, West Germany, to Dallas, it's been quite a journey, and her abilities to adapt, survive, and thrive are what make her unique in homeschooling. So have your pen and paper ready. It's The Sociable Homeschooler. And now, here's your host, Vivian McNinney. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere and that there was a danger of a riot, he took water and washed his hands in full view of the crowd. My hands are clean of this man's blood, he declared. See to that yourselves. With one voice the people cried, His blood be on us and on our children. He then released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and then handed him over to be crucified. Matthew 27, verses 24 to 26. Jesus stood all alone before Pilate. Nobody spoke up for him. Nobody helped defend him. The crowd cried for his death and the robber Barabbas' release. He devoted his entire life to helping others, listening to the smallest ones, caring for those who were ignored by others. The crowd didn't seem to remember that as they prepared to put him to death. Children sometimes feel alone. Sometimes they feel that others don't stand up for them and defend them when they're afraid. Sometimes they don't feel like they're treated fairly especially if they're scolded or corrected. As an adult, sometimes I feel abandoned and afraid as well. Sometimes I too feel like I'm treated unfairly or blamed for things unfairly. I have a hard time when people criticise me at home or at work. I want to be grateful for what Jesus did for me. I want to be able to accept criticism and unfairness as Jesus did in front of his accusers, without complaint. Jesus knows what it's like to stand alone and be countercultural. I pray that I may lean on him and follow in his footsteps and never be alone. Good morning and good afternoon. Welcome to The Sociable Homeschooler. I'm your host, Vivian McNinney. Today is Good Friday, the apex of Christ's passion. We remember his death and the sorrow of his mother and followers as they see their innocent son and friend put to death on the cross. Sharing this hour with me is Robert Vallade, the author of The Wisdom of Pixar, Conversations with C.S. Lewis and The Heart of Narnia. Robert recently co-wrote with Sarita Holtzman, founder of Sunlight, a new high school curriculum called What Good is Christianity? He's written two articles on his journey from atheism to Christianity, Ghosts for the Atheist and Giving Up Atheism, and today he'll be weaving his personal experience into the salvation story as we meditate on the meaning of Lent, Holy Week, Christ's death and resurrection. First off, What is Lent? It begins on Ash Wednesday, or more accurately, Fat Tuesday, as Shrove Tuesday is called in New Orleans, the feast before the fast, and lasts for the six weeks before Easter. The date changes with the moon each year. Lent is a period of preparation for the resurrection of Christ, the most important festival in the Christian year. Historically, there have been three special associations of Lent, a period of fasting, the preparation of those to be baptised at Easter, at a time of penitence observed by those who were excluded from communion for some grievous sin. Today we can fast from food or activities, television for example, or the internet. One year, my son took down all his Star Wars paraphernalia in his room for the six weeks. In America, we always have a baptism or two on the Saturday night before Easter. The grievous sin exclusion from the church hasn't featured in any of the churches I've belonged to in my adult years, but we are encouraged to go to confession and receive communion at this time of the year as part of our Easter duties. 
During Lent, we are preparing to enter as deeply as possible into the heart of the Christian belief, the resurrection of Jesus. Under the influence of the Holy Spirit, it was the mysterious experience of Jesus' resurrection that brought the early Christians to belief in Jesus. It was the same Holy Spirit that inspired individuals like St. Paul to explore the concept of resurrection and the implications that it had for humanity. Resurrection as part of the, of the Christ event was and is God's greatest loving gift to his creation. It's our task as Christians during Lent to prepare ourselves to accept that gift and live the sort of life that shows we have accepted the gift. We are to be prepared to work with the Holy Spirit even when we don't understand the mystery. Worship is a vital part of that preparation. It's an opportunity to experience the story and reflect upon the mystery. Experience and reflection will encourage renewal both for individuals and the world. Lent can be, if we let it, a veritable springtime for our souls. Our lives quickened by the breath of the Spirit and warmed by the sunshine of God's love may bear abundant fruit and be made radiant with the beauty of holiness. Growing up in our homeschool, our children experienced a Lent that endeavoured to be a six weeks of a life different to the rest of the year. Yes, we still did school and played and ate meals, but we did find other things to do that weren't always easy to achieve given our secular world so that we could significantly set this time apart. Our churches helped us and a couple of traditions got us through and looking back on past Lents, the beauty and hope of spring was never marred, so we couldn't have been too Spartan in our goals. On the Sunday before Ash Wednesday, we'd sit down at our kitchen table and write about, write our Lenten rule. We would do things like um, no meat Fridays, which was tough because Friday was our traditional CC's pizza day. And what's the fun of pizza if you can't eat meat? We didn't change it to Long John Silver Day, but we did lean heavily on our church for several years. There would be a meatless supper in the parish hall, followed by Stations of the Cross each Friday. And we would volunteer to take the family to church early, since we homeschooled, and Fridays were usually half day anyway. And we'd set up the tables, make the tea and Kool-Aid, serve the soup and sandwiches. The children were young, about three to nine years old when we started doing this, but they loved it and really missed the activity when Easter finally came and we went back to our normal life. We would write no meat on Fridays and stations of the cross. Then the children would add whatever they were going to do themselves. They always gave up something. Our priest had encouraged us to add something too, but food was always easy, especially chocolate or sugar. And this has prevailed to today. Malia's given up chocolate and crisps. I would always change our morning prayers and Bible study to reflect the season. And we'd work through the passion, read books about Easter and customs and hot cross buns and decide what kind of food we were going to share and grace our Easter party table with, which became an end of Lent, sigh of relief for surviving the gruelling rigours of Holy Week. It was an annual celebration. Our friends looked for their invitation about a month out before they committed to anything else. What are they going to do this year, we wonder? The carefully prepared Lenten rules would then be folded and placed on a container on the family altar. After Easter, the children always liked to revisit their rule to see how they did. And then we'd burn them. Robert, your journey from atheism to Christianity reflects in a profound and real way the transformation, renewal and personal changes every Christian is called to do as he or she walks with Christ. Tell us how you travelled the road to Christianity. Well, that's a great question. And I think in many ways, faith is really a journey for us. And some of us, of course, are just getting started. Others are quite a bit along the way. 
myself. I did not grow up in a Christian home, so uh, we didn't really attend church regularly. I, I didn't ever have any formal sort of training or instruction and uh, drifted personally toward just unbelief, really. I think at some point I, I must have uh, you know, believed in, in God, some sort of vague grandfatherly figure uh, somewhere out there, so to speak. And later, really, that became sort of uh, what we'd call deism, this, this God who uh, is often compared to the watchmaker who creates the watch, winds it up, and then sort of leaves it alone and has nothing to do with it again. Mm -hmm. So I might have had a, a vague idea of God being there somewhere, but not really personally, not really active in the world or in my life at all, uh, just sort of distant, uh, maybe would pop out now and then to... Uh, sort of wag his finger at me if I did something he thought was questionable, and uh, just sort of went through life that way for uh, for a number of years, really, until I got to college and uh, started thinking, I think, more deeply about some of these questions. And, you know, as I said, it, it's really a journey that, that we're on, and for me, it, it began that way and resulted in, in wanting to find some sort of meaning you know, C.S. Lewis wrote often about uh, what he called desire or joy or this longing he had for something that could uh, really fulfill him in his life, and really echoing, I think, the ideas of thinkers like uh, St. Augustine and Blaise Pascal, who pointed to something that could fill this void that we have. And in that sense, I, I felt strongly, uh, along with Lewis, that uh, there had to be something more, something something more meaningful to the world instead of what I viewed as sort of this meaningless or purposeless universe that uh, didn't really have a point to it. We all have this void, and I think it's inherent, isn't it? It's, it's just it's just there. I think it is there. Some people may suppress it, or they might mistake it for something else. They might think that they can find this fulfillment say, in, in love or in, in money or in possessions. And ultimately, I think it, it leaves, uh, it's still lacking if we look for it in those sources. Mm -hmm. And Pascal's quote is really wonderful. It's often misquoted as, you know, saying that we have this God-shaped vacuum, vacuum in us that, that only God can fill, which is accurate. But the, the quote itself, if I can read it briefly, uh, Pascal says, what else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim, but that there was once in man a true happiness, of which all that now remains is empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. Mm. Uh, so that's the actual Pascal quote, which I think is wonderful. So you, he suggests that man once had that, that they, they didn't, there wasn't that vacuum, and that would have been before the fall. Yes, and Pascal was very big, of course, on discussing uh, matters regarding human nature. And he saw the fall as, of course, a pivotal moment in uh, humanity and uh, really viewed people as what he called deposed royalty or deposed kings that we were once sort of these kings and queens in God's kingdom. And uh, because of the fall, we, are, we no longer have that uh, status that we once had. We, we sort of are not in the, the proper place where we should be. 
So in a sense, the history of humanity is, is really God trying to uh, perform his plan of redemption to to return us to our proper place. And, you know, you, you have the, that theme, I think, often in literature. Uh, we could speak, of course, of, of Tolkien, even the, the title of his third book in The Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. This sort of uh, uh, putting things right that are wrong. And that, I think, is a part of everyone's uh, journey in faith. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNenny. So Pascal sort of had this view of, of humanity then that, that really uh, he tried to explain reality on the basis of, of the fall and, and how we're made in, in God's image. And, you know, we could talk more about that, but I think uh, the important point here for us is really, you know, where are we now after the fall? And, you know, certainly uh, God has uh, given us certain, uh, certain abilities. Uh, we're made in his image, which means, um, among other things, that, that we have this uh, intelligence, this ability to, to think through things. We might say that now, after the fall, our, our vision is, is not perfect. It's, it's, uh, we're not blinded either. We, we are sort of uh, vision impaired here in our ability to, to understand and, and grasp the world. So as a, as a non-Christian, as a non-believer, I, I tried to figure out, I think, intellectually more so than in other ways, uh, you know, what was the meaning of, of reality? You know, there, there are really three big areas here that we talk about in philosophy. And they have, they have very fancy-sounding names, but they're really fairly simple concepts. And the first one is we, we ask the question, what is ultimate reality? In other words, what, what, is the, what is the ultimate meaning? And that's the area that's called metaphysics. So we ask questions about God and whether or not he exists. And there's a, another area as well that we would ask, and that, that question would be, well, how do we know it? And any kind of question regarding knowledge and how we know and what we know is, is categorized in what we call epistemology. And a, th a third category would be uh, sort of the so what question. And that is, well, what do we do now with it? What, how do we determine right and wrong and good and evil? And, of course, that's the ethics component. And in some you know, simple ways here, uh, as, a, as a young man in, in college, I was trying to figure out answers to these three big questions. 
you know, what is reality? How do we know it? And, you know, so what? What does that mean to me in my life? So I think in my case, you know, as I said, it was more of an intellectual pursuit, really trying to figure out, um, you know, questions regarding God's existence and how I could even know that. And I was not at the time a trained uh, philosopher in an academic sense. I was actually uh, a musician pursuing a, a degree in music composition. So I had a, a sort of somewhat of a different mindset. I wouldn't say I wasn't so logical as I, as I am now, but I, I certainly had more of an emphasis on, on the fine arts and, and things like that. So for me personally, it was a, a journey of trying to to understand you know, whether or not this this God thing you might call it existed. So, and, so why was it so important to you to find this out? Because it sounds as though you would, oh, um, if you weren't actually taking those kinds of subjects, were you? Were you taking metaphysics and epistemology? Oh no, 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 I was practicing piano four hours yeah. a day because I needed to for my degree. Yeah. But, so why? Why did you? Why did? Why was that so important? Well, for me, I think it was that that sense of longing and desire we talked about earlier. For me, it was it was very strong, and and nothing could really satisfy it. There might be moments where it it would be there for a brief time, and then it would be gone. And I would be, well, well where did it go? And how can I recapture that? And what can I do to find it? You know, music would do that for me at times, but it, it seemed as though it wasn't quite uh, as much as it could be. That there there needed to be something else there. And uh, I just, I think, had a, a certain degree of angst and just trying to figure out, uh, you know, make sense of what my, my purpose was. And I think that drove me to continue to seek, uh, really on, on my own time, so to speak, even though at the time I was a full-time college student. Hmm. Yeah, that, you know, that that's sort of, I don't know, very many people, I suppose you were... Um, very serious-minded, um, took your took your life and, and what you were going to be doing with your future very seriously. Or perhaps the fact that you weren't um, raised in a God, um, well, a, a, a God atmosphere, let's put it that way, um, made you think, well, did you have people around you that were faithful, that, that were Christians or believed in God, you know, had a faith of some sort? Well, I think, uh, you know, in my case, I, I was very serious. I I did certainly had a, a, a more fun, enjoyable side to myself, and I, that certainly come out a lot more since I've been a Christian. But at the time, I just uh, was very serious about trying to figure out and understand what was real and what mattered. And some of this, I think, goes to, to my background. You know, I, I often... Uh, my my doubting about God's existence would often center around what what is typically called the problem of, of evil and suffering. Mm. You know, why is there evil and suffering in this world? Mm. And some of it for me uh, really went back to my father, who who passed away when I was, and uh, you know, before I was born. Actually, uh, my mother was was pregnant with me, and then my my father was killed in a car accident. Mm. And a lot of that I think came back to me growing up that you know well what what happened here you know what why did this happen to my mother why did this happen to me and my my brother you know losing our father uh, when he was uh, such a young man uh, I think the issues like that often come into play into people who later profess to be atheists mm-hmm. you know if you dig deep enough I think you will find issues there that uh, some of these individuals had either with some. Uh, pain and suffering issue 
or something that that uh, sort of triggers, I think, their doubting of whether or not God exists. Uh, so for me, you know, that that was one of those uh, triggers, so to speak. And um, you know, I did have some people who around me who were believers. In fact, I met my wife in in college, and um, you know, she had been born and, and raised in the church, so to speak. So she had a very different approach to to things, and uh, was quite helpful in guiding me in some ways into to things I could read. I, w- I was much more interested in reading material than actually talking to Christians. I think I just preferred the, the solitude of trying to figure things out on my own. And that really was when I was first introduced to C.S. Lewis and his writings through Mere Christianity. And, of course, many years later, I ended up writing a few books about Lewis, and uh, now I teach at the graduate level occasionally on Lewis. So, um, you know, you never know how God will orchestrate things, so to speak, so that they come together in your future life and make much more sense in retrospect than they did at the time. Yeah. Well, I I remember when I was a young student, well, not really at college, I was still doing my A-levels at school. Um, Some of my friends were, you know, sort of, they were reading Jean-Paul Sartre and talking about metaphysics. And I, I said, well, I wasn't interested because I suppose I had my faith, so I really wasn't interested. But people were asking those questions I just wasn't interested in the answers to those questions, I suppose, to mm-hmm. that degree, because maybe I thought I already had the answers to the questions. I had no idea. So, sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, that, that's, oh, I think that's marvelous. I think God was working in your <laughs> life. I really do. That to, to make you, um, you know, sort of study that so, so deeply. And that's the best way of finding out, isn't it? Find out for yourself. Oh, definitely. Yeah. The fifth Sunday in Lent is called Passion Sunday, and the readings and hymns reflect very clearly the turmoil Jesus was going through as he meditated on and spoke about his upcoming death. In John's Gospel, chapter 12, he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He talks about unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it will not produce fruit. He tells his disciples, Those who love their life will lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now his humanity peeks through. My soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? But he knows he must carry on in order to glorify the Father. He foretells that the ruler of this world will be driven out, speaking about Satan. And I, when I am lifted up from earth, will draw all people to myself. He is clearly indicating the kind of death he was to die. He's afraid. Wouldn't you be? Samuel Crossman whose dates are 1623 to 1683, was a minister in the Church of England and a hymn writer. He became dean of Bristol Cathedral, died in 1683, and is buried in the south aisle of the cathedral. His sacred hymn, My Song is Love Unknown, says it all. My song is love unknown, my saviour's love to me, love to the loveless shown, that they might lovely be. Oh, who am I, that for my sake my Lord should take frail flesh and die? Christ came from heaven's throne, salvation to bestow. But people scorned, and none the longed-for Christ would know. But, oh, my friend, my friend indeed, who at my need his life did spend. Sometimes they strew his way, and his sweet praises sing, resounding all the way, hosannas to their king. Then crucify is all their breath, and for his death they thirst and cry. 
They rise and needs will have my dear Lord made away. A murderer they saved, the prince of life they slay. Yet cheerful he to suffering goes that he his foes from thence might free. Here might I say and sing no story so divine. Never was love, dear king, never was grief like thine. This is my friend in whose sweet praise I all my days could gladly spend. And another passion hymn I grew up with was always sung in Latin at weekly benediction. It wasn't until years later that I read an English translation by Percy Dermer from the Latin Venantius Frutunatus, 530 to 609. Take a note of the date, 530 to 609. It amazes me that such old words are still available to us and are equally as relevant as they were centuries ago. Listen to how heart-wrenching they are. Sing my tongue the glorious battle. Sing the ending of the fray. O'er the cross the victory's trophy. Sound the loud triumphant lay. Tell how Christ the world's redeemer as a victim won the day. And during Holy Week, especially on Good Friday, today's service, my school teacher daughter's favourite hymn of all time, reducing a lot of us to tears in the pews and at the altar, are these words to this most beautiful hymn by Johann Hiermann. 1585-1647 Our holy Jesus, how hast thou offended that man to judge thee hath in hate pretended by foes derided, by thine own rejected O most afflicted Who was the guilty? Who brought this upon thee? Alas, my treason, Jesus, hath undone me T'was I, Lord Jesus I it was denied thee, I crucified thee. Lo, the good shepherd, for the sheep is offered, the slave hath sinned and the son hath suffered. For our atonement, while we nothing heedeth, God intercedeth. For me, kind Jesus, was thy incarnation, thy mortal sorrow and thy life's oblation, thy death of anguish and thy bitter passion for my salvation. Therefore, kind Jesus, since I cannot pay thee, I do adore thee and will ever pray thee. Think on thy pity and thy love unswerving, not my deserving. I need to go on a short break now for about 90 seconds. And after that, Robert and I will be back with more reflections on Holy Week and the wonder of God, what God did for us when he sent his son. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Why do I feel so lousy? Why aren't my medications working? Why can't my doctor figure me out? These are just a few of the questions Dr. Kevin Connors will be exploring in Dr. Kevin Connors Live every Monday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, 10 p.m. Central on Tuggynet.com. The author of the book, Help, My Body is Killing Me, Solving the Connections of Autoimmune Disease to Thyroid Problems, Fibromyalgia, Depression, ADD, ADHD, and more. He'll dig into these and many other conditions to dissect the mechanisms of your problems. Giving God the glory and looking for answers to make you look and feel better, to make you feel whole again. For more on him, his book, and the show, check out UpperRoomWellness.com. Never be satisfied with a diagnosis. There is always a reason behind it. 
And if you can alter the mechanisms that led you down your current path, we can change your future. It's Dr. Kevin Connors, live, Monday nights at 9, 10 Central, here on Togginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNinney. Palm Sunday marks the beginning of Holy Week and was quite different for me this year. First off, it was the family Eucharist at St. George's, which meant that the choir wasn't in residence. Instead, we were treated to the junior choir, which were very good. When we entered the church, we were given our palms already folded, and in the pews were ten-foot palm fronds to be held up at appropriate times during the service. The first time was at the procession of the altar party and the choir, with an invitation to follow along bringing our children, and we made our way around the three aisles of sanctuary, walking beneath the canopy of palm fronds down the central aisle. I could just imagine Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem the week before his crucifixion, the shouts of the people crying, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest heaven. The waving of the palm fronds and excitement in the air as they expected great things from the Messiah riding on a colt. Soon their shouts were changed to crucify him. How fickle we are. We held up our palms each time there was a procession. It was magnificent. Many years ago, when my oldest was about 12, he said after attending all the services of Holy Week how he'd finally got it. For really the story is told from the triumphant entry to the Last Supper with the foot washing, the breaking of the bread and the agony in the garden on Maundy Thursday. At church the altar is stripped, the consecrated elements are solemnly processed to the chapel of repose and watched in one hour increments by members of the congregation. On the way home in silence on Thursday we make a detour to Taco Bell to avail ourselves of cheesecake chimichangas. Don't ask me how that became a tradition but somehow it did. On Friday, the service commemorates the death of Christ, and after chantings and other scriptural passages, we again depart in silence. The service on Holy Saturday tells it all. It begins in darkness, and we watch as the priest kindles new fire, lights the congregation's candles, and we tell the salvation story from the Old Testament. And then finally, Christ is risen, and we are joyful indeed. It's Easter. We ring bells and sing. We're on fire. Each year after that, another one of my children got it. And to this day, they still attend the Triduum to restore their feelings of redemption, the uplifting of their souls and spirits as they realize they're saved. Christ rose and sin has been defeated. It was wonderful to watch the lights go on in their souls. And now Robert is going to continue on his journey and is looking for arguments for God. So my journey continued and I began to uh, read more and then try to determine different uh, what you might call arguments for the existence of God. Uh, you know, of course, by argument as philosophers, we, we don't mean that you're in some kind of fight. It's more of, you know, what are, what are the, uh, uh, what's the case that someone can make uh, for God or against God? And, you know, at this point, uh, you know, as I said, I didn't really have a, a good philosophical or theological background or training. So a lot of this I just encountered along the way. And uh, there were some specific arguments, though, that helped me sort of point the way and, and make things clearer as to whether or not God existed. You know, one of those is, is the universe itself. You know, we ask the question, why is there something rather than nothing? Or we can ask the question, uh, where did the universe come from? And, um, you know, even scientifically speaking, 
the, the consensus is that the universe had a definite beginning, a specific set time ago in the past. So we have this beginning of this wonderful creation, this, this uh, universe and, and stars and planets and what have you, and you really have to kind of go back to the, the point there and ask, well, well, how did this come about? And, you know, everything that has a beginning has a cause. So since the universe had a beginning, it, it had this cause, and we need to ask the question, well, what caused it? What's, what makes the most sense or what seems to be the best explanation for it? And to me, it, it made more sense that there was some sort of God. You know, at this point, I'm, I'm still many miles from Christianity, uh, but on the on the path toward it. And uh, it made more sense to me that there had to have been some sort of God, some sort of grand, you know, whether you call it a, a designer or architect or, or some purposeful uh, being behind it. Uh, it made sense to me. So that was one of the arguments I looked at. Uh, the other is typically called the argument from morality, uh, that is what C.S. Lewis presents in the first book of Mere Christianity, uh, which he calls Right and Wrong uh, as a clue to the meaning of the universe. And that, that one, I think, hit home very strongly as well. And the argument would basically be that, uh, you know, we, we realize that there are uh, objective moral values in the world, things that are, are definitely right and definitely wrong. Um, and the question is, how do we know that? And by what standard do we know that there is this right and wrong? We just seem to have something within us that that uh, sort of uh, uh, helps us to know that. Uh, but as far as its source and giving it more meaning, uh, there must be some sort of a moral lawgiver, someone who set up these standards and uh, is you know a, a sort of guiding that area of our lives. So the uh, morality argument was uh, was certainly important for me in, in uh, believing in God. I would say another one would be the design argument. And there there are variations of all these arguments once you really get into the details. You know, you can find uh, dozens of arguments for God's existence. But the design argument influenced me at the time as a, as a, a very serious musician. Uh, I could tell, uh, you know, just looking at the, the human hand or something, how, how there is so much uh, intricacy and in design, and it seems as though it's been planned uh, this way. So the design argument says, well, if, if we can find evidence of design in the universe, then there must be some evidence that there's a designer. And I think we, we get suggestions of this in Scripture. We, we have Romans one twenty that says, you know, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, uh, so that men are without excuse. In other words, we're without excuse in our unbelief because God has made it clear that he is a reality. So early on um, in history, God, none of these were questioned, were they? Well, uh, I mean, a long time back. Because it seemed to be, the church seemed to be like all-powerful and everybody believed in God. And people really didn't question it that much. So... Um, what happened? Well, that's a good point. You know, I think that there's always been people who sort of wonder and try to figure out things uh, philosophically. Of course, we have the the pre-Christian thinkers, you know, uh, people like Plato and, and Aristotle and Socrates. Uh, we could even point to the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, you know, which uh, uh, really uh, points to the meaningless of life without God. 
uh, which ties into uh, what we'd call uh, nihilism today or existentialist thought that, that doesn't find any meaning or purpose. And, of course, the, the Old Testament teacher says, well, you know, of course things are meaningless uh, unless God is there at the center of your life. But really, as, as far as debating and getting into uh, really detailed issues as to these questions, I think much of this in modern times came out of the Enlightenment period, which we would look at the 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, you have thinkers like David Hume questioning whether uh, you know, miracles are possible, whether God exists. Uh, you have thinkers after him like Immanuel Kant, uh, who would uh, really get to the point of saying, well, we don't really know. We, we, we have to keep our hands off of metaphysics, and, and we, we can't really be f- sure about any of these questions or answers about God or his existence. And uh, from there, I think, uh, leads into more overt skepticism. Uh, there's a historical you know, doubting as to the reliability of the Bible, as to whether uh, you know, Christ rose from the dead, or are these just supposed to be parables that we can use in our lives today? And from there, I think it just uh, degenerated further in the 20th century. And, uh, you know, we, we are where we are now, where there's a, a often an openly hostile sort of skepticism and atheism. And fortunately for us as Christians, there's a wonderful amount of material and resources available to us that show uh, that God is, is certainly still alive, that uh, God is real, and he can make a difference in people's lives. And we have good reasons uh, there to fall back on, to, to understand. Um, you know, Christ said in uh, Matthew 22 that we are to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind. Uh, we are to use our intellect uh, as best we can to understand God and, and help others understand as well. And unfortunately, it seems the more that we find out about the world, the, the, the louder these skeptics, you know, shout that, oh, there is no, there is no God. Yeah. And I'm thinking, oh, for me, um, who I'm not a scientist, the more it shouts to me that there is a God. So is it because man has become, I don't know, too big for himself? Man wants to be responsible for everything. I think there's a number of factors involved there. Some of them, I, I think, really have to do with pride issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a certain undercurrent as well of, of rebellion in human nature, uh, going back, of course, to the fall, which we touched on. Uh, we just have this rebellious nature where we want to do our own thing. We don't want, uh, as C.S. Lewis put it, a transcendent interferer uh, telling us what is right or what is wrong. Mm. And, uh, you know, I can certainly relate to that when I was not a believer, that I, I wanted to, to pursue my own interests, to do my own thing, to not have to uh, answer to anyone or anything. And there, there's that strand, I think, of rebellion in human nature. There's maybe a certain degree of callousness or... Uh, what we might say, hardening of heart that uh, we have in our age. And in some respects, uh, you know, depending on the atheist, I know in, in my case there were times where I, I would think to myself, you know, there is no God and I really hate him, yes. <laughs> <laughs> which seems sort of ironic. But uh, that's, uh, you know, you, you, you sort of know intuitively that there's something there, yet you, you struggle to deny it. And in some cases, I think we have atheists like that today. Uh, they, they're very vocal. Uh, they, do, they say they don't believe in God, but I think in some respects they're just angry at God. They don't, they don't like him. Mm-hmm. And it could, you know, much of this could stem from misunderstandings 
about God's nature and, uh, like I said, questions about uh, perhaps evil and suffering. How do we answer that? Mm-hmm. And for me, you know, it, it ended up, uh, you know, finding different ways to approach that that situation. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, looking back, I can say, well, yeah, it, it does make sense. You know, this this may not be the best world right now, but God has a plan for making it the best possible world someday, uh, and evil will one day be overcome. Yeah. And we, we have that faith and trust in God's power to do that. Yeah. And you talked to, you said hardening of hearts, and it immediately made me jump to Pharaoh and, you know, how how God hardened his heart yet again. And in the end, something good came out of that. So perhaps this is all part of God's plan. We're just, we're just too small to to even imagine you know, uh, what it's like to be God. <laughs> I can't imagine well, it myself. I, I think we see fragments and some, perhaps the great minds of our, our centuries see see more than fragments or mm-hmm. piece things together better. Uh, but we're not God. We don't see everything that's happening. Mm-hmm. And we do see in the Old Testament uh, signs of that, you know, God using evil for good. You know, you mentioned the, the story of Pharaoh and of course it led to the freeing of the Israelites. And we also have the story of, of Joseph, you know, who's brothers turned against him and sold him into slavery and ends up, uh, you know, even Joseph is the one who says that, uh, you know, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Yeah. So God can use even those bad things in our lives uh, to uh, point to, to good things that will come, even if uh, we don't understand them at the time. Absolutely. And Robert, we need to go on a quick break. And Robert and I will be back in about 90 seconds. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Girlfriend It is on Toginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The Girlfriend at Principle was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out Girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNinney. So now, of course, with these arguments, I got to the point of, of, uh, you know, probably I wouldn't say that I was 100% sure that God existed, but I would say the probability was high, I would think at the time would be my my take on it. So something was there. Uh, I love the way philosopher, uh, Christian philosopher Dallas Willard puts it, that uh, in some ways we can establish what he calls a haunted universe for the atheist. Uh, If you can use some of these arguments to get an atheist to wonder as to whether or not there might be a God there, 
then their universe is in a way haunted. There's something transcended, something very powerful out there um, that is in control of of reality that has, uh, you know, got the universe going. And for me at that point, uh, you know, I I then moved on to studying Christ and trying to understand uh, who who was this, this figure. You know, at the time I didn't even... I wasn't even sure if this was a historical person. I got sort of bought into the, the approach that, uh, you know, well, maybe Christ was just a legendary figure or a myth. And, uh, you know, I remember reading uh, somewhere uh, a very, uh, you know, somewhat of a secular account of Christ, but it, it, there was no doubt there as to whether or not Christ existed. It was He was presented as a historical figure who obviously uh, spurred the beginnings of Christianity. And that was uh, eye-opening to me. Um, you know, encountering Christ, uh, I began to read the Gospel of John at that point. So I, I had uh, turned from maybe studying, you know, non-Christian writings to actually looking at the Christian writings, mm-hmm. and I encountered a you know very fascinating figure in the person of Christ. And I think we we all know the the passage where Christ uh, is asking his disciples, you know, uh, what a pe- who do people say that I am? Mm-hmm. And they give him some different answers and. And then he makes it quite personal. You know, he says, who do you say that I am? And I, I got to that point, I think, where I really had to determine, you know, who was this Christ figure that, that uh, made such, you know, profound and meaningful statements, um, who, you know, spoke the way he did and did things the way he did. And, of course, we get those uh, suggestions in the Gospels and reading them as to how um, Christ would often shock people or or they would be quite surprised at the things he said, uh, wondering, well, who is this person? And, you know, in, in wondering that personally, you know, I came to the point uh, where, you know, after I ended up believing in God, that I had to do something about Christ. So my conversion to Christianity came, I think I was in my second year of college, and it was a very powerful, very profound and, and moving experience for me. And, um, it very much changed my life in drastic ways and in wanting to, I think, move from being self-centered to being, well, really Christ-centered or other-centered, wanting to, uh, you know, do something more and something uh, meaningful with my life as opposed to a very prideful sort of egotistic and self-centered approach that I had as as a musician at the time. Uh, So there there was certainly some significant changes there. And... Um, you know, the, the whole point of Christ is this this redemption story. We have the, the wonderful passage in Luke 19.10 where we read, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And that's uh, very profound for me, and it, it's helpful for me to remember, I think, where I came from as a Christian, uh, you know, now more than 20 years ago now, uh, and, and where I am now, to, to not forget that history in each of our our journeys of faith, um, you know, may, many of them very different than mine, I'm sure. But but to remember, you know, how God has has worked in our lives is is very important. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering while you were um, telling us your story, what would you be doing had God not jumped right into your life and said, "Hey, come on, it's me. <laughs> you need to, you need to find out about me," because it looked as though you were going towards the music, and you definitely wouldn't be doing what you're doing now. Well, I, I don't think so. I think uh, it could have worked out some different ways. Uh, in, in some respects, it could have been very destructive. Had I continued, say, as, a, as an atheist or a, or a skeptic, 
you know, I probably would have continued with my music and, and as a composer, uh, but, but probably more along the lines of the the frustrated artist. (laughs) So who knows where that would have ended. Uh, I I personally believe that the logical outcome of atheism is that there there is no meaning or hope or purpose. Uh, So what do you do with that? You know, Uh, do do you, uh, you know, is the the existentialist Camus, I think, asked the question, uh, you know, why shouldn't I kill myself? I Mm -hmm. think you've come to that point where there's just no hope or meaning Mm -hmm. or you do, uh, as C.S. Lewis said it in one of his essays, you know, you defy the universe. You you realize that there really is no hope or meaning. Everything is is meaningless, but you sort of defy it and you shake your fist at the universe and, and you go on anyway. Uh, or you live it up, you know, uh, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die, sort of, uh, again, with the Ecclesiastes approach without God. Um so I probably would have ended up uh, very unhappy, miserable, perhaps not even be alive today, really, as uh, uh, if you look in the field of, of the fine arts, you often have uh, a, a great deal of self-destruction going on in, in artists who are, who are not faith-centered. Mm-hmm. My, my husband's in the music business, and he has a lot of friends now, older, of course, and, and they're um, so mellow, found God. Um, clean lives, you know, and they're they're still alive, and and but they they found God, and and they're happy, and they still do play their music, but they they play it, you know. You can still eat, drink, and be merry once you found Christ, because then you have reason, you have right. reason for this this life, and uh, instead Certainly. of it being empty, trying to fill that hole. So, um, Robert, what are you going to be doing this Easter with your family? Well, we always uh, have some traditions we like to follow. For the past uh, several years, we've been watching the uh, motion picture called The Miracle Maker, which was made about uh, 12 years ago or so, and it's sort of a claymation animated mixture. And uh, it really does a wonderful job, I think, of presenting the Easter story in the gospel. And I have children ranging in ages from uh, the youngest is five and the oldest is 17. And we all enjoy watching it. Uh, You know, it's a good, uh, good, good. Uh, retelling of the the Easter story. Yeah. Uh, we do something uh, called Resurrection Eggs, uh, which is a uh, somewhat of a blending of the Easter egg hunt, but with the Christian uh, story behind it. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of these eggs have little objects in them that represent different parts of the Easter story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of them might have a, a, a coin in it, a silver coin representing the the uh, silver that Judas was paid. Mm-hmm. Uh, we might have a little robe, a little cloth in it representing, uh, you know, Christ's robe mm-hmm. and, um, you know, a cross, of course. And we would find these eggs. And as we find them, we we talk about the Easter story and how they tie into that. And, of course, their father being who their father is, me, I, I often emphasize the evidence for the resurrection yeah. that we have, you know, that we have the empty tomb. We have the many appearances of Christ. And, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ appeared to more than 500 at one time. Uh, we have a wonderful amount of evidence uh, to show that Christ did rise from the dead and of course, uh, changed lives. Uh, you know, people uh, have this experience of Christ, and I wouldn't emphasize the experience alone, but in iso- in isolation, in other words. But combined with all of these other e- evidence and arguments that we have, and reasons for believing in God and Christ, I think you know, in my case as well, the the, the uh, 
religious experience, the personal experience I've had with Christ over decades has uh, certainly amounted to part of the argument or the case for the truth of Christianity and the power of Christ's redemption. Wonderful, Robert. Thank you so much for joining me today. I've been talking to Robert Velarde, author of The Wisdom of Pixar, Conversations with C.S. Lewis and The Heart of Narnia. Robert contributes to Sunlight as a curriculum writer. His most recent work is for high schoolers called What Good is Christianity? He's also written two articles, which I highly recommend, about his journey from atheism to Christianity, Ghost for the Atheist and Giving Up Atheism. Links can be found on my Tokenet page and my blog, The Sociable Homeschooler, as well as under Robert's name when you Google him. Robert shared his very personal salvation story with us today. He recounted his conversion from atheist to Christian, thus shining a light for us on the sacrifice God made when he sent his only son to die for the sins of the world, particularly our sins, and by so doing empowering ordinary people like you and me to shed their disbelief and shrug on the truth of redemption to enter into a new life, a rebirth a resurrection from death into life. Thank you so much, Robert, for sharing this holy time with my listeners and me today and for bringing Jesus to life with your powerful story. Have a blessed Easter weekend and I look forward to talking to you again. Well, you too. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. Bye. Today, we will venerate the cross as we approach it in bare feet, a fact my children could relate to as they prefer to go everywhere barefooted. We kneel before the crucifix and kiss it and we're paying the highest honour to our Lord and the instrument of our salvation. In reverencing his cross, we are in effect adoring Christ. Thus we affirm, we adore thee, O Christ, and we bless thee, because by thy holy cross thou hast redeemed the world. The reproaches are chanted, no organ music on this day, as the people are venerating the cross. In this haunting and poignant poem of very ancient origin, Christ himself reproaches us, making us more deeply aware of how our sinfulness and hardness of heart caused such agony for our sinless and loving Saviour. My people, what have I done to you? How have I offended you? Answer me. I led you out of Egypt, but you led your Saviour to the cross. For forty years I led you safely through the desert. I fed you with manna from heaven and brought you to the land of plenty, but you led your Saviour to the cross. O my people, what have I done to you? that you should testify against me. And my time is up for another week. Thanks to Robert Velarde for joining me on this most holy of days. I wish all of you an Easter where you continue to get it, as my children do. Rejoice in the empty tomb and live as Christ would want you to, free from death. I hope the sun shines on all of you. I'll be here, same time, same place next week. So without further ado, I'll say... Thanks to my handsome husband who believes in love at first sight, our four children who are the result of that belief, I miss you three in Texas, the hard-working staff at Toginet Radio, my guest Robert Velarde, and you, my faithful listeners, especially Anne in Lindale, Hannah, Tina, Rosemary, Pam, Charlotte, and many others who are part of my growing audience. Don't forget to listen to my friend Sandy Fowler and to Ali Lepreete. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord show you his kindness and have mercy on you. May the Lord watch over you and give you peace. Doop, doop, doop. Doop, doop, doop. Thank you for joining us for The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney on Toginat. The Sociable Homeschooler is Vivian's attempt to help dispel the stereotypical homeschool family. She and her husband have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who are willing guinea pigs for her foray into homeschooling, the Wildflower Academy, which flourished for 15 years. Vivian is here to be an encourager to all of you who are thinking of homeschooling. 
Plus, you'll have some great ideas on homework, vacations, keeping science projects in the house, and being popular versus popularity. So we'll see you here next Friday for another engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Friday afternoons at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com.